This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Clear the Cash. I'm your host, Nate List. You can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. And of course, with me is Mr. Jesse Bach. You can find him on Twitter at planet underscore fatness. Jesse, once again, one of our good size breaks between episodes. I know people have been asking, where's the show at? Are you and Jesse okay? Have you guys been fighting? Is that the reason you don't have an episode that's been released? Obviously, that's not the case. Jesse, can you validate for them that we have no issues between us? Uh, children, mommy and daddy are okay. Uh, <laughs> mommy and daddy might live on that's opposite good. sides of the country. That's true. <laughs> but, but they're still together. Uh, no, no, man. Dude, honestly, uh, yeah, we're totally fine. Um, the holiday, it was just kind of like a wacky wave of, you know, end of the year, holidays hitting, new year. Um, I've been working like crazy personally. I'm sure you have been too. I know you've, I know you've been crazy busy with work and, but, uh, but yeah. And besides that, just work, work's been crazy altogether. So yeah, we're, we're still okay. We're back to recording. Um, so, uh, the children can, can, uh, stay at ease. Yeah, that, that's right. Mommy and daddy will give you a kiss on the cheek when you go to bed. So everything's okay. Jesse, I always love when you turn it into a mommy and daddy analogy. Nothing makes people more angry <laughs> than when you hit them with a mommy daddy thing. That makes them not even want to ask personal questions anymore. They're like, what a dick. I'm never going to ask about their personal <laughs> life or how they're doing again, if they're going to treat me like this. Um, but Jesse and I have been texting, talking a lot about cards, a lot of different guests that we've kind of thrown around, or at least Jesse's tossed at me here in the past couple months that we want to get on the show that would bring a, an incredible level of insight or experience or nuance. And that's been some of our best shows, our shows with guests, um, it, whether it's a guy that has a story uh, from a sales point or a guy that's a buyer um, or again, hopefully at some point we're going to get some of these bigger eBay sellers on here just so you guys that are purchasing or looking to buy cards or looking to sell cards can kind of get an idea of what it's like from their point of view and submission and, and have a little more confidence in sending your cards to maybe a consigner or something like that, like we did. And I know that's going to come up on this episode, Jesse, but right off the bat, we should talk about PSA because I think you've got some nuggets about it that people are going to be very interested in hearing. Uh, roughly within, uh, depending on when this episode comes out, probably within the last two weeks or so, um, PSA has fully opened uh, regular submission pricing and the, the regular service level um, without any restrictions. So before you could, um, you could either use like a bulk, a bulk sub uh, service uh, with you know a, like a third party like a like a card shop or something or just you know companies that like individuals that do bulk grading um, exclusively you could you know submit like five or ten cards to them or you know some limited amount of cards because with every with every account that PSA has or 
yeah, with every with every account at PSA, you'd be you know limited to like twenty cards or something at the regular service level. Whereas right now PSA has lifted all restrictions with the regular with the regular service. Um, so you could submit as many cards as you want through the through, through the regular level, um, but it, it doesn't come very cheap. Um, so we're, we're, it's it's still going to be quite quite a while until we see um, economy level pricing or like super bulk grading pricing, like back to the twenty dollar days or something or fifteen dollar days. So um, the regular service level opened up at a hundred dollars per card, with the max declared value of each card at one thousand four hundred ninety nine dollars. So. It still uh, makes you, uh, you you have to be pretty selective in terms of what you would want to submit. Like you don't you don't necessarily want to submit like, I don't know, a card that costs one hundred dollars raw. You don't I don't know how much you really want to use the regular service level on a card that you already spent one hundred dollars for and want to spend one hundred dollars to grade for, in order for it to like. You know, you never know what if it gets like an eight or a nine or something and it actually like goes down in value. So you just you just lost, you know, you, you lost a good chunk of 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 money doing it that way. So um, it, it I think cards that make sense to start grading are probably in between like the fifteen hundred or the five hundred to fourteen hundred dollar range or for fifteen hundred dollar range for this uh, for this type of service level. Um and, and in terms of turnaround time, I've been hearing pretty good things from people from, you know, actual people that have been um, submitting at this service level where like from door to door in terms of, you know, the starting point is when they actually ship all of the regular service level cards to PSA and the time that they to the time that they get them back in hand, it's about a month. Um, I don't anticipating it being that quick once they opened it fully. I think it'll probably probably be closer to, you know, a month and a half or two months. And that's still pretty good uh, compared to, you know, the economy level service that I've been waiting for, for the last, you know, like I've been waiting for this box for like 13 months or something. And I still don't have it back. Um, but I, you know, two months of time versus, you know, a year or 18 months or something is, is a huge improvement for PSA. So, and Jesse, I don't know that we've ever really broken this down, but I know a lot of people have questions when they look at some of their cards and they realize the potential value of the card. When PSA says maximum declared value, in this case for regular being $1,500, what, what does that mean for people? So the value of the card as is... A, in in its raw condition would have to be less than $1500 in order for them to not upcharge you basically um they i mean PSA does have a caveat where all of a sudden if you're holding all right so let's say you're holding i don't know a, a Marvel's PMG of whoever whatever um you got it Let's say you got it six months ago or not even, you know, let's say you got it a couple months ago raw for like the three figure range for like, you know, 800, 900 bucks or something raw. Marvel PMGs are going crazy right now. We're seeing we're seeing five to six figure sales of these types of cards. So if they give a card like that a decent enough grade, there's probably a chance that they'll upcharge you. Um, but those, those circumstances don't happen too often. So I don't think you have to be really concerned unless if like, let's say you're submitting a Patrick Mahomes, um, just whatever card of Mahomes. And then all of a sudden his entire market goes up 20 X in like the course of a couple months. Um, I don't know how realistic that is. Um, it's very, it's, 
I guess I guess it's, that's not the worst problem to have if PSA upcharges your card because that means you're sitting on gold. So um, just kind of a little silver lining there. But the the declared value is the the valuation of the card in its raw condition before you even submit it to PSA. So that's that's uh, that's a good that's a good caveat that you pointed out there, Nate. Right, and and like you're saying, if if they deem that your card is uh, been understated in value, they will then offer to upcharge you to the service level that it should have met in the beginning. And at that point, I guess you can decide to decline or pay that value and they'll send it back to you. I think you get charged the rate of return or whatever, but I think that's the case. So looking at the card that you have, I mean, I think most people are going to understand this submitting it, but I know it's something that people have asked in the past. Um, so, yeah, with this being open back up, I mean, it, it's going to give a lot of people opportunity to, to start submitting some things. I have some cards that I want to submit. I don't know what service level I'm even going to submit them at right now. I think I think that might be a mistake. If you guys have, um, it's it's definitely a good time to open up a PSA account if you don't already. So um, I was talking with a good buddy of mine a couple weeks back, and he's been a PSA uh uh, subscriber, uh, you know, account member for years. Um, he's been collecting since he was a kid. And, uh, he told me that, uh, all of a sudden in the middle of his work day, he got an email from PSA stating that he, if he wants, he can join the portal, the, the economy service level portal. So, um, with, with the economy level grading, uh, you, if, if you, if you jump into the portal, um, you basically join a wait list and eventually when when your number when your weight when your place in line keeps going down and eventually your first in line PSA sends you an email of um, an offer to submit five cards with them if you want if you if you want to participate in it um, you do actually have to join the portal and join the wait list to even to even get you know an opportunity to get this email. Um, this happens randomly. I don't think it's like, I don't think it's necessarily scheduled, uh, as far as we know. Um, so you just kind of have to keep an eye out, uh, on your email and, uh, the, the perk with the economy service levels, it's $50 a cart as opposed to a hundred dollars with great, with a regular grading. Um, so you can definitely submit cards that are, you know, maybe a little bit lesser in value cards that you're not as eager to get back in hand. Um, so I, you know, with, with the economy level, I'm not quite sure how long it's going to take to get back in hand. Um, probably not too long just cause the, the wait list, even if the wait list was kind of, it was pretty exclusive. Um, I don't know if they had like, you know, maybe in the low thousands of the number of people that, that were, uh, looking to submit, you know, five economy level cards. And for that, like, what, what are we talking? Like maybe fifth, maybe, you know, tens of the low tens of thousands of cards for that service level, which for PSA, that's like fucking peanuts for them. When they're, you know, used to grading like tens of thousands of cards a day as is. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't think the return time from PSA would be all that much more than the regular service level. Um, I think even when, when Nat came out um, and commented on, uh, there, there was a, a person on Twitter or, or Instagram that asked how long is the, the wait time actually going to be even with the with a regular service level. And he said, we we guarantee you, you will get the cards back within 90 days time. So 
I'd anticipate economy probably being on on that level. Who knows? Maybe if they get like super backed up and they do this more and more often, maybe it'll turn into like a six month ordeal. But as of right now, I I don't think we're we're looking, you know, anywhere close to six months, even for economy. So just just as an FYI for all our listeners to to maybe if, if, if they've been kind of on the fence of getting a PSA account themselves, as opposed to submitting to like a bulk grader or a bulk grading service, um, it might not be a bad time to, to create your own PSA account. PSA's PSA's back flowing. People have an opportunity to get in. This is great news. There's some even more exciting news for those of us that were questioning where tops might have been headed. You know, Jesse, you and I have been talking about the fate of tops and some of these other brands out here since Fanatics signed the deal that they did with, uh, you know, all these player associations. And most recently, Fanatics acquired tops in a deal that was worth as much as $500 million. And I know that you have a take on that price tag. But what's really interesting, and I do want to talk about this too, is uh, you know, looking at an article online, they mentioned that the deal includes all parts of Tops cards, the, the collectibles, both physical and digital. So they do have the Tops NFTs, which were released, I think, last year in April, which might be another interesting caveat as we sort of travel through this NFT digital world. But what are your thoughts on the Fanatics acquisition of Tops? Is it predictable? And this $500 million price tag, was that a serious price break? Um, it absolutely was, given how um, the valuation of Tops when they were, you know, when they were in talk, when they were in talks of getting bought out by, I, I, you know, it, it's been so long that I can't even remember if it was like a Spock group or whoever, whichever group was going to was going to basically take ownership. Um, of the company, they were, you know, the valuation was somewhere between three and five million, three and five billion dollars. Um, and then income in, in, in swoops fanatics, they cut top tops off at the knees. Um, they get, they get the license for baseball starting in 2023. So tops only has the exclusive license to baseball through the end of 2022. Um, I think more people should have probably predicted that that Tops would have been the first to go um, in terms of a company being acquired by Fanatics, um, because they—I mean, what leverage do they have? What they have, like it's January 2022 right now. They have what 11 months left of leverage, kind of not really. Um, so in Tops' eyes, they really had—they really didn't have a whole lot of time left on their hands before. Before fanatics can really buy them for peanuts, like in in 2023, just to just to get um, a hold of their manufacturing, you know, their like production and manufacturing uh, processes um, to be able to manufacture these these cards a little bit more a little bit more easily. So, in in terms of the 500 million dollar price tag, I mean, it's a steal. It's a steal for for fanatics, of course, and it, it's it's for sure a win win because. The longer tops would have waited, the lesser their value, the valuation of the company would have been. Um, and so, I mean, it definitely works out for them, works out for their employees who, who I think for the most part, they're going to, they're going to be working under the fanatics umbrella. Um, if fanatics, like as long as fanatics decides to, to keep all of them, which I think they, they will, or at least most of them. Um, but, uh, in terms of, in terms of fanatics, like 
this being a winning move for Fanatics, it absolutely is because they're acquiring basically, like you said, all of Tops right now. So Fanatics is the head honcho right now with baseball. Um, and the with everything in terms of manufacturing and production, you know, Fanatics hit the ground rolling as it is. Like they don't have to, you know, take care of that themselves. They already have the people that can do that for them. It's just under a different name now. Now it's under Fanatics, but the cards will still be branded tops, but they're using all of tops technology, which is a huge plus for, for Fanatics. Um, Josh Looper, the, we, we've mentioned him on, on plenty of uh, previous episodes. The, the chief, I think he's the, ch- the chief creativity officer of Fanatics. Um, he put out a graphic on his, I think Twitter and Instagram um, that had a time timeline of 1952, so basically the first year of Topps baseball, to today and then the future. Um, so 1952 to today had the it, it has the Topps logo underneath the timeline, and then from today onwards for the future, it also um, he, the Topps logo is also pictured under that part of the timeline. So basically, my interpretation of what he's trying to say in this graphic is, you know, we're not going to try to reinvent the wheel. Um, Tops has been, they've been doing a pretty damn fine job with producing baseball cards and cards in general for the last, you know, 70 years. So we're not going to try to do anything crazy where Tops knows what they're doing. Um, we're going to, we're going to keep it that way. And, you know, a lot of, um, you know, who knows if there's going to be more, more and more sets created and maybe some sets that kind of take an artistic leap or a creative leap. Um, but I, for the most part, I think what we're what we've already seen in the past with tops is kind of going to be status quo, and especially modern tops. So I don't think there's going to be there's going to be too much changing um, with, it, with the type of product that that we're already seeing. We might see some newer sets, but um, yeah, it's just it's it's an interesting move. It's it's it was kind of a no brainer for both companies, honestly. It's it's a shame for tops that it. Their valuation came down so much, but um, yeah, definitely a winning move for both t- Fanatics and Tops. So this is a really interesting little thread to weave in here, Jesse. I know this is not something that we talked about, but I had an article that I had read through before and I had pulled it up. Uh, this is from the New York Times back in April. And I just want to read these three small paragraphs to you because this might this might blow your mind a little bit. It says basically Tops announced Friday morning that the deal was off Um this is with uh, the Spock Group for the $1.3 billion merger. A day after they were notified that baseball contracts will not be renewed when they expire in 2022 for player image uh, likeness, uh, which the player union controls, and 2025 for logos, which the MLB controls. Andy Redman, executive chairman of Top, said in a statement that the company had been left in the dark by its negotiating partners at the league and the players union. And the quote says, not only were we unaware that Major League Baseball was negotiating with anybody other than Topps regarding our rights beyond 2025, he said, but Topps was told on Thursday by Noah Gardner, the league's chief revenue officer, that a deal was completed, finalized, and exclusive with Fanatics. So Topps actually had no idea that this was going down in the background. So when you talk about cutting their legs out from under them, I mean... The, the league didn't say anything either. So very interesting. I mean, zero leverage, especially, and you had mentioned it earlier, the referencing back to what we had talked about with Alex Rodriguez and the Spock group, I believe is what it was originally, but it's kind of an interesting turn of events for them to sell for basically pennies on the dollar 
in something that they really had no idea was coming. But as you mentioned, or I think you mentioned, all the members of sort of the higher um, executive portions of tops are being left in place. Yeah, I think even even from the from the lower level, like in terms of like the people that actually like oversee the production directly, you know, they're on the forefront, they're on they're on the assembly line. Um, I think I think for the most part, they'll they'll, you know, be able to keep their jobs with fanatics. Um, all right. So I, I, I apologize for, for that for that misinformation, that fake news that I spread about the three to five billion dollar valuation. We're looking around the like in the neighborhood of one point three to one point five billion dollars. Um, I, again, it's still it's still pennies on the dollar for what Fanatics is paying for them. That's that is cold blooded as hell, man. That is that is uh, that's nuts. Um, that that Tops wasn't even aware of this of even the talks taking place, um, and and MLB kind of left them in the dust too. So that's that is um, <laughs> damn. That's that's nuts. Like. And I, I mean, at, at this point, like it's if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. Uh, like, what leverage do they have? They don't really have very much. Well, they, you know, it's unfortunate that you know, as we're as we're putting the old story from the New York Times together with the information today, hindsight, like, yeah, th- them not getting information from the league, which they had had a relationship with for obviously a very long time, seventy years, um, yeah. for it to be that hush hush. And for them one day to be notified after going as far as like preparing a merger worth bill, you know billions of dollars, and then I believe they called it off literally a day after the merger was set or announced is crazy information. Wow. So, you know, I we can't speculate that Fanatics had done anything in the wrong here. I mean, this is this is on the league to make this notification. This is on the league to let Tops know that they're negotiating behind their back. All these things, but amazing that Fanatics was already valued at, I think like 18 billion at that point in time and now they're acquiring probably Tops, all of its manufacturing, all the digital work that they had already done, the infrastructure. So, what a win, but Great for people that were fans of Tops, right? For sure. Um, yeah, just just like to kind of put the exclamation point on what you just said. That's cold blooded capitalism for you, right there. Uh, money talks, and nobody else, you know, once they see higher higher dollar signs, uh, nobody gives a shit um, about niceties and and being and being polite. And you know that that seventy year old uh, that seventy year uh, member uh, partnership was kind of axed right then and there, and they didn't even. You know, imagine being like divorced uh, by your wife after, you know, you guys have been married for 20 years and she just like leaves. She just, I mean, sorry, sorry if that's happened to anybody, but, but uh, that's, that's fucking cold as hell. That's basically what, that's, that's what uh, the MLB essentially did to tops. So, you know, you know, poor guys, but I, I mean, at least they, they, for the, for the most part, will get to keep their jobs at the end of the day. Um, just, you know, just kind of sucks for the valuation of the company, but in terms of um, previous uh, tops products and and if collectors like the move, I think for a majority, a lot of true collectors will like the move. Um, I'm I'm sure with there there are collectors that are frustrated with what Panini um, has has done in recent years with maybe overproduction. And honestly, like we don't really talk about tops enough in terms of doing the same thing because they they kind of are. Um, in terms of watering down sets and and making too much of a good thing to the point where like you know that maybe the maybe the valuation of that product was was off um, as soon as they started overprinting it. Um, but in in terms of 
old prod or like older products when maybe previous uh, previously tops had the license. Like let's say for example for football um, or basketball, tops had the license for for quite some time um, until uh, for basketball it was like 20, 2010, I believe. Um, and for football, the last year was 2015. Um, I, it's, I'm not trying to, I'm not going to like pump up the value of like, oh, your 2015 tops cards are going to be worth something of like, you know, rookie X or whoever, or your, you know, 2008 tops Chrome gold refractor is going to go through the roof now of whichever player. But um, I think there's good, I think that nostalgia for those products is definitely going to come back. Um, it's, I think people will always compare Prism to Topps Chrome um, and maybe select to Topps Finest. And I, I'm sure there will be diehard, diehard people of either or set. Like there, I know there are people that only collect Topps Chrome and Topps Finest and they don't collect Prism or Select or any, any Panini product. Um, there's very passionate collectors in 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 uh, both companies, and both and both types of sets. So, um, but I, I think it's hard it's hard to say that this isn't going to positively impact older Topps Chrome and Topps Finest sets, and just top sets in general. Um, so I think people if um, people have been kind of holding on to that, we there might be there might be a price surge, a price increase on those types of cards. But, you know, I, I, the collectors win essentially here, because if you like seeing stuff like that, if you if you miss Topps Chrome, Topps Finest Gold Refractors, you're going to see them again uh, pretty soon. Um, we have a bit of a, a ways away and I know we haven't touched on this yet, but we might as well roll into it now um, in terms of maybe. Uh, if Fanatics has their eyes on 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 uh, you know other companies um, at the moment, and I, they'd probably they'd be lying if they said no. Um, but it's I think it's going to take it's going to take quite a bit for them to acquire um, you know the other the other big powerhouse manufacturers. So with something like Panini um, in terms of the possibility of them being acquired at this moment in time by fanatics, I am not in the boardrooms of either organization. So I can't say for sure, but my, for my speculation, I don't think it's going to happen this year. And I don't know if it's going to happen next year because fanatic, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Panini has their exclusive license to produce football I believe both football and basketball through 2025. So they have far more leverage right now uh, to to or to not make a deal um, with Fanatics than Tops did because Tops realistically they only had 11 months left, um, whereas Panini has they they still have a good three to four years right now. Um, you know, we're probably going to see a deal at some point in time, unless if there's another powerhouse that buys out that buys out Panini and, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, keeps the creative juices flowing in terms of competition still being out there between uh, Fanatics slash Tops and whichever company in Panini. Um, but I think Panini has all the leverage right now. Uh, whereas where, where I said before that tops might've had a three to $5 billion valuation. Uh, that's, that's fairly accurate for Panini, um, in the three to $5 billion price range. I'm sure it's gone down ever because, you know, 
Pliny knows that they essentially have a death sentence right now. So they only have a couple years left where they can produce product. Um, so I, I, I don't foresee a deal coming anytime soon from fanatics and, uh, I, people were speculating on upper deck as well, but I, even if, even if, uh, uh, fanatics wanted to acquire upper deck i don't think legally they can like there's a lot of red tape there because of um upper deck is owned by like a fan they're not owned by a collect like a group or anything some or a corporation they're owned by a, a family or like a like a some family estate or something um so there's a lot of red tape in terms of a corporation like fanatics acquiring a family-owned company um, so I, I don't anticipate that happening anytime soon. And I know there are people that, um, there's, there's people that would either love or hate the acquisition of upper deck because, um, with, with upper deck coming back, we might have precious metal gems come back. We might have exquisite come back. Um, and there are plenty of Michael Jordan and LeBron James autograph collectors that actually wouldn't like that because that would kind of water down the value of their autos um, and with how many that there physically are that are, that were produced from exquisite. And there's just some people who love collecting nineties and they don't want to see PMGs again. They just want They want them to be one and done um, from the three years that produced the, uh, from the years that, um, that they were produced 97, 98, 99. Um, there's just people that, that don't want them to come back and want them to just stay as um you know, it, it, both in terms of like nostalgia and the valuation of those of of those cards from the '90s, they just kind of want them to stay as they are. So um, there's kind of there's there's a lot of pros and cons of of acquiring either of those two other companies, but I don't think either either of them are going to happen anytime. This soon. I don't even know why I'm bringing this up on the episode because this is such a caveat as we're talking about Upper Deck, Jesse. So. I guess recently uh, in December, Upper Deck had paired with a company called PHF um, to start making physical and digital trading cards in 2023. And there's an article. We need to dig into this deeper one day. So I shouldn't even bring this up now. But but the best part about this is the quote that goes, the decision to produce and sell NFTs is one that comes with a whole host of implications. One of the most pressing is the environmental impact of blockchain technology. Dude, we're going to have to talk about this at some point because this is crazy. Here's a quote from the article. It goes, for something so small and virtual, the environmental impact in the real world is large. According to climate scientists, due to the energy needed to store NFTs on physical servers. Are you serious? We have a, we have a whole. What? <laughs> <laughs> we have a whole episode. This is talk about cutting something down at the knees. The Yeah. People that drive Priuses are super pissed off about the future of NFTs, apparently. So this this is a topic we'll get into another time. I just want to put this out there. Uh, anybody who's hearing this episode, if you've got takes on this, please submit them. Uh, this is just crazy. But yeah, I agree. The, an upper deck used to be, when I was a kid, it was everything. So to see it over the past, you know, so many years is such a shock. Same. I when I was a kid, and you know, I was in my like heyday of collecting way back when I was I wasn't even a teenager. I I, I Upper Deck was like that was the pristine company. Tops was kind of whatever. Like Tops had Tops had the plain base cards, whereas Upper Deck they had really cool in action game shots. They had like Upper Deck was. They they had more memorabilia cards and that that was a that was a big thing I was into when I was younger so I like autos were just uh, 
they were, I couldn't even imagine pulling an auto out of a pack or a box. Like I was bigger on Jersey cards. Cause that was actually like a box hit. Um, and upper deck had like the sickest, they had the sickest patch cards, like upper deck. They really knew what they were doing in the two thousands. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, in terms of, uh, getting into the, the NFT space, man, that's, that's, cr- I didn't realize that like, you know, we had to, we had to measure emissions that were brought onto us by, by NFTs, honestly. I mean, we've, we've heard about this with cryptocurrency in the past and mining rigs and the amount of power that they use to, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or other currency, I, I don't have the same point of view on this as other people. And I really don't want to turn this into an environmental episode. It's just really funny that, that in the thread of this article about how upper deck is trying to go digital and and offer some other types of products. Somebody was like, but Hey, they're, they're fucking the trees by doing this. And here's how, and there's an article on that. So maybe next week we can get into this a little more after we do some research, but at least the teaser is out there. Now, Jesse, I know you wanted to talk about some underappreciated sets of cards that people could be out on the lookout for. Yeah. So we had, um, we, we have a small patron question, uh, segment on, on this episode. Um, and we got some pretty good questions in this weekend. Uh, one question that kind of inspired me to dig a little bit deeper was, um, a question that came in from Dan Ryder, uh, on, um, on the, uh, outraged you pa- Patreon. So, um, Dan wrote, I love the show and I used to be a collector when I was a teenager in the eighties and nineties. Uh, what's the best way to find out what my cards are worth? None are graded, but I have some awesome cards. Also, I love buying boxes and opening packs. What are the best football card boxes now? I know these are basic questions and make me look like a boomer, LOL. Um, uh, don't, don't worry, sir. There are, there are teenagers that are asking these questions too right now that are, uh, that are looking to get into the card game. So, um, yeah, no worries there. Um, but just to kind of uh, before we go into the into the deep dive into into the the set question um, in terms of uh, what's the best way to find out what my cards are worth. Honestly, dude, just go on eBay, uh, search search completed sales. It takes it, it takes a long long time. If depending on how many boxes you have, um, I like I remember my uh, the first couple nights when like I got back into the hobby and I started digging through my basement and seeing seeing what I had, I, I spent, I spent a whole weekend on eBay, just seeing what everything sold for, um, recently, just to kind of get evaluation in my mind and see if I was sitting on anything good. Um, and you'll be surprised, you'll be pleasantly surprised with, with what you can find. So that's in terms of, it's like the quickest answer I can give you, um, and most simple answer, but probably, probably the most reliable in terms of actually, you know, properly value, uh, valuating what, um, what you what you currently have and what you've been sitting on unknowingly for years um but uh in terms of the best football card box i'm not gonna say i'm not saying it's the best um so if if you've heard previous previous episodes dan um you you'll notice that we've talked about uh you know flagship sets from panini uh like prism select optic um, the much higher end sets that it's, if you were to bu- purchase a box yourself, it is a very expensive rip. Um, those types of boxes include like, na- uh, national treasures, flawless and immaculate. Um, there's, there's other like mid tier to high end sets as well. But one set that, um, 
I've been kind of digging into more and more myself, and I've actually been wondering about uh, getting some of the um, sealed hobby boxes. Is uh, so they're specifically from from two years, but it's 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 the same set. Um, it's uh, 2018 and 2019 Panini Unparalleled Football. Um, there's a couple reasons why why I like this set, but there's there's one main one. So I'll kind of go through. I'll kind of go go through the whole set um, in general and and why why I picked these two years in particular as opposed to previous sets, as to pre- previous years of the set. Um, so overall, the set features two hundred veterans and one hundred rookies from each year, twenty eighteen in twenty eighteen, and then again in twenty nineteen. Um, the set has many parallels, and in terms of uh, people criticizing Panini with too many parallels. Um, in any given set, especially if you're looking at a year like 2020 select, which has way too many parallels, way too many one-on-ones, way too many serial numbered cards. Um, this is pretty, pretty easy to digest, even for like a beginning collector in terms of how many different parallels you're looking at to the, to the base set. So, um, from 20, from 2018 and not, not too much changes into 2019, um, you have the flight parallel, which is not super hard to pull. That's in one in one in every three packs. The shine parallel, which is one in every five, um, the astral astral parallel, which is numbered out of two hundred, super plaid numbered out of one fifty, the whirl numbered out of a hundred, impact out of seventy five, hyper, which looks hypers actually look uh, pretty nice out of this set, numbered out of twenty five, and then the the last two are just super, they're in, in, like crazy hard to pull, um, which are the fireworks out of five and the burst one of one. Um, interestingly enough, the burst, uh, if you, if you just type in Panini unparalleled burst, uh, one of one on eBay, you'll find some really nice looking cards and the design actually looks fairly familiar because if you're familiar with the design of Kabooms, which I'm sure there probably many of our listeners are after how much we've talked about them. Um, it has a, the, the burst one of one has a Kaboom design, um, in the background of the card. So it, it looks just like the Kaboom, except it has a, a, a caricature of, or a, a, a picture of the actual player in gameplay, as opposed to like a cartoon design um, or like a more cartoon caricature that is presented in Kabooms. So I just like that design in general. I'm pretty sure, like, I don't think that there's like any gold burst one of ones or something or green burst one of ones. I think it's just, um, it's just a regular silver burst, but it, you know, it is nice to have a one of one, especially of a player that you PC. Um, so that's kind of, uh, and, and the fireworks out of five too. That's, that's a really sweet card as well. Um, however, the main reason why I picked out the, uh, these two sets in particular is because they feature the, uh, super short print galactic parallel. Um, this is a super tough it's even though it's not numbered, it is very, very short printed um, because uh, it, so it, Galactics. All right. So kind of before I dive into pack odds and whatever, Galactics have been um, super sought after in basketball. Uh, they've been available in basketball since 2015 in the Panini Revolution set. Unfortunately, um Panini football doesn't feature revolution, um, but it has unparalleled. So that's where that's one that's where unparalleled comes in. Um, what makes Galactics really you know sweet looking parallels is every which way you turn the card. If you have the card in hand, and every which way you reflect it against the light, a new design 
in the background pops up. It's it's really it's like the card is dancing at you. It, it it's the design is really one of the most unique designs I've ever I've ever seen on a card from any time period. And I've I've lately I've been very pro 90s and and some of the 90s designs are unlike some of the ones that we'll ever see again. And this is we're talking about like on that level of of design. Um and interestingly enough for for football um 2018 and 2019 unparalleled were the only years that featured galactics uh and in, in those sets uh 2020 for whatever reason uh panini didn't didn't release unparalleled i'm not sure if 2018 and 19 sold very well um but the cards look excellent uh in basketball they are they are worth quite a bit of money um if you find either a player's rookie uh like in basketball you have a whatever 2015 revolution nikola jokic galactic psa 10 um that card that's like a five figure card right there um steph Cur- i'm pretty sure there was a public sale from either P- pwcc or somewhere else where a 2015 galactic steph curry psa 10 sold for like $60,000 or something a couple months back lebron's uh psa 10 from from any year bgs 95 any gem mint copy um, from any year of LeBron, that's like at least a four a four figure card. It's at least like a five like a three thousand to ten thousand dollar card, if not more. Le- LeBron PSA ten from the first year of Galactic, that's that might be a fifty thousand dollar card. Um, whereas in football, if you look at things that are available right now, um, you're talking about a fraction of the cost. Even I'm talking about like even. I'm going to give you guys a peek in what's in my save search menu or uh, my watch list on eBay, but there's a Tom Brady out there from 2019, 20, Tom Brady Galactic, uh, BGS 95 that's available for, I think, around $3,000 or best offer. So compare that to to another card from basketball, for, for uh, Galactic and bas- basketball that might be worth in the five figures. I think that's, that's not the worst price. Um, I'm not saying it's a small amount of money, but in terms, of, I think you're getting pretty pretty decent value, especially for a super rare short printed uh, Brady card. And some people might not like the fact that it's not a it's not a serial numbered parallel. Um, but I just I want to emphasize how hard it is to pull a galactic from even a from a an unparalleled hobby box. So looking into some of the pack odds, um, it is a case hit uh, for uh, from unparalleled in 2018 and 2019. So I mentioned in the very beginning, talking about the set, there's 200 veterans and 100 rookies. To pull a veteran galactic, uh, you're talking about one galactic in, in every 192 packs. So it's, it's a 200 card set because there's 200 veterans uh, in the set. So for any player to pull a galactic of any player could be Jared Goff, could be whoever. It doesn't matter. Um, you're talking about one in one, one in every 192 packs. You will pull a galactic on average. Um, so if you're if you're hunting for a player in particular, let's say you're hunting for a Tom Brady from either 2018 or 2019, you're hunting for a Tom Brady galactic in any condition. You have to go through 38,400 packs before you pull one on average. That is... All right, so we don't talk about pack odds enough on this show, probably because we don't we don't talk about like a huge number of 90s cards. 
in the 90s, what made these cards, what, what made inserts uh, sought after, besides, besides the art, besides the, the, um, the leap of faith that the designers took in terms of producing these cards, um, was the scarcity and the rarity. And a lot of, these, a lot of those inserts and parallels from the 90s weren't numbered. But you could find pack odds on, on the outside of the box. Um, in terms of what is what is super rare from from uh, pack odds from the '90s, people consider pulling a, a player specific card. Like you, let's say you're looking for a Michael Jordan, um, whatever ins, name insert whatever from 1997. Um, and to pull a specifically a Jordan, you have to go through one in uh, you have to go through 900 packs to pull a Jordan. That people already feel that that's you know that's a fairly scarce card. You're not going to find that you know in every card shop you go into, or even on eBay readily available necessarily. Um, and then you go into the you know the super short print stuff like uh, Star Rubies and even uh, you know. Um, playmakers theater in basketball where they're serial numbered out of a hundred, but you can kind of calculate, you can calculate pack odds from there. Even from there, you're talking about, um, pulling a, a player specific parallel or insert. Uh, you have to, you have to pull, you know, rip 3000 to 10,000 packs to specifically pull Michael Jordan or an Anthony Hardaway or whoever you're targeting. Whereas in 2018 and 2019 on Parallel Football, if you want to pull a Brady, if you want to pull Mahomes, pull whatever, specifically, you, you on average have to go through like 38,000 packs in order to pull one. So don't let the no serial number fool you. Um, it just it adding to the actual art and design of the card, um, the, in terms of the scarcity, it's it just adds to the card. It, it adds to everything. It adds to the to the rarity, the design, everything. And I think even the base cards look sick. Like if you just want to collect a base set, that's a fairly affordable product uh, to go after. Like if you, even if you want to get like a hobby box, rip it, not whatever. Like I think over time, this is. I'm not trying to pump this, but this is this is like this is very like as a collector, I kind of. I, over the, over the last couple of years, I've been um, curating my taste to to what I like, and I definitely like rarity. I like scarcity. I like art, artistic design, and I like for designers to take a chance when they're designing a card. And I think Panini took a pretty big chance in designing this set all together. Um, when it comes to you know dropping like five hundred dollars on a hobby box like this, um, I think it's I think it's relatively affordable compared to other hobby exclusive football products. So. Um, it's, I just wanted to, to shout this out. Um, I actually have, uh, you know, full transparency. I do have a 2019 AJ Brown, uh, rookie galactic. Um, it's not, it's not a parallel to the base set. It's a parallel to, uh, the rookie review, um, insert, but the, uh, the, I mean, the pack gods are, they're, they're just about on that level. It's, it's, it, if you, if you want to check out my Instagram, um, I'm on there, uh, at flippity flip cards. And if you, you know, it might take a little bit, but scroll down and you'll find a 2019 AJ Brown um, unparalleled rookie review galactic. And I actually have a video as part of the post just to just to really try to capture the art behind the card um, because a picture doesn't do it justice. Give yeah, give Jesse a follow on Instagram. We're trying to get this guy as many followers as he can. He's doing some of the craziest, deepest research active in the community. So 
check that out. And yeah, that is an interesting set. The pack odds versus the serial number is an important conversation. And we really have not talked about that much. So it's interesting to hear it in those terms. And the actual odds of pulling some of these players are just insane. Uh, near impossible to actually pull off. So um, before we jump into the rest of these patron questions, by the way, Dan, nobody thinks that you're a boomer. Uh I'm going to do the, uh, we got we to gotta talk about underdog, obligatory underdog take here. Quick shout out to them as the show sponsor, Underdog Fantasy. Download their app today. Use the promo code UNDERWORLD. Get $25 bonus cash for new players who deposit. Jesse, we have one more set of questions uh, from Rory Koch. I'm going to say it like I'm assuming that's how his last name is said. Uh he says, the vast majority of cards I've purchased are raw. I'm considering finally getting some of the better ones graded. I'd prefer using PSA or BGS, but with their high cost and long lead times, it seems like HGA is my best option. Is HGA respected enough by collectors at this point? I like their custom labels, and they seem like tough graders, as I don't mean, see many 10s or 9.5s out there. Um, I mean, H. all right, so HGA, they've been kind of they've been a pretty significant avenue in terms of collectors being able to to still get some of the the their more common cards graded i see a lot of really rare stuff graded there too um the thing that makes me hesitant about hga after seeing kind of what they've done over the last calendar year or so is um you know, a red flag of, of theirs is that they have, that there have been cards that slipped through the cracks that weren't authentic cards that they've graded as authentic and they've given num numerical grades to. Um, but before I truly, like, all right, so this is from my perspective. Before I truly want to, um, you know, trust a, a grading company to, to grade my stuff, I definitely want to see them having... Um, People, I want to see people having positive experiences with them for a good period of time, like like five to ten years period of time. I'm saying so. I'm I'm very selective with where I submit my cards. Um, so that's that's primarily where why I stick to PSA and BGS. I think I think SGC is they're basically getting there too, um, just because they've been grading for so long. They they just haven't been grading modern as often, but. Um, I think I think they're they're a super transparent company. Um, they know what they're doing, uh, and I, they've been around for for a long, long time. So uh, I, I'd even entrust SGC. Whereas HGA, I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm a little I'm a little more hesitant with them. It's not even the slab design. I've heard I've heard pros and cons um, with their with their slabs and and the design of their labels. Um, it doesn't even have anything to do with that. I just want to see more out of them. So I, I personally would just, I'd stay patient um, if I were you and kind of wait for PSA to, to open up a little bit more because Nat has come out publicly, publicly and said that in the middle, like they're anticipating, you know, middle of 2022 for economy to open back up fully. And, you know, it's not the cheapest option. It's probably going to be in the $50 neighborhood. Um, but in terms of knowing that, you know, who graded this card has, you know, years and years of experience, knowledge, expertise, um, the, the brand itself is very well recognized by collectors who don't even grade, uh, who don't even uh, collect graded cards. They only co collect raw. 
Um, but it's very well, it's a very well respected name. It's a very trusted name. So I personally, if I were you, I'd just try to, you know, squeeze it out a little bit longer and, and wait until economy opens back up. If, if you feel that that's the appropriate price point for you, or if not, you could even look at the regular pricing round, if it makes sense financially for the card. It, do, it doesn't even have to be something that you want to flip. It, even if you're a collector, does it make sense to grade the card at this particular price point? So I'd, I'd honestly, if I were you, I'd probably weigh your options a little bit better with uh, with with PSA. And then I'm sure at some point BGS will open up. So um, I'd, I'd probably pick one of the two, uh, one of those two companies as opposed to HGA. I have a couple buddies that have used HGA. And yeah, you know, the slabs are unique. They're a bit radical in terms of what's existed since the beginning of time of getting cards graded and slabbing them. Uh, I think it appeals to a different buyer, but I mean, if history and, and statistics or anything, we know that PSA and BGS are still the two primary options. Uh, and, and for people that are getting cards graded, what's the reason that you're getting them graded? Are you getting them graded because you want an opinion of their quality? Are you doing it with somebody just so that they're protected in a slab? Are you doing it for resale? And I mean, if that's your case then you should probably continue to go with the tried and true, well-known, highest-selling companies. Like you're saying, PSA, I would probably stick with them uh, when the opportunity comes around. Rory did have one more question, though. He said that you mentioned you had a good experience selling that Yager card through Wharf. What do they do well? When should I consider using a consigner, and what should I look for in a consigner? Wharf is... Um probably one of probably the most professional consigner I've ever had the pleasure of dealing with honestly I've dealt with um, I've dealt with PWCC I've dealt with golden um, I no offense to, to those guys they're to, to either of those companies they're great um, but in terms of uh, ease of communication so all right so Worf, you can you can DM him on Instagram and he will get back to you the same day like guaranteed it's gonna happen. Um, he's, he, with his work day, um, I'm, he might not get back to you like in a half hour just because it's, it's not a one man band over there, but it's, uh, or a one man operation, but, um, it just about like, he does a lot. He does. He's very, very hands-on with, with listing and, um, you know, being at the forefront of, of that company. So he's very approachable. Um, and uh, something that like I didn't realize that I would get, and I've I've talked with War for a while. Like I, I consider myself to be a, a decent, you know, a, a good friend of his. Um, you know, we message back and forth about our Jerry Rice collections on on Instagram, um, and just you know cards in general. Um, but he's super uh, transparent along uh, every step of the way, so. I, I, I mean, it, I'm not. I'm not saying this specifically just from my perspective, just because I've known the guy for some time. No, I I hear this from everybody who even just meets the guy. Um, in terms of transparency, they uh, the company lets you know where the card is every step of the way. So obviously, like while the card is being tracked, uh, being shipped from your post office, and it gets to Illinois, where where Wharf is, um, that's obviously you know that, that all goes through USPS. But once they receive the cards, they'll email you that they received the cards. They will email you that they entered the data of and the, the title, the listing, everything. They have everything ready to go for the cards to be listed on eBay. Um, 
and then they'll email you when they're actually listed. And then the auction goes on. You, you can watch it yourself if you want, just if you know, if you want to keep tabs on it. And then when it sells, when, when the auction's over, they won't email you until the buyer actually pays. So they'll send an email that says, great news, buyer's paid. Um, and they'll send you uh, basically your, like the net, the net uh, you know, amount that you're going to get out of the sale. Um, so they're, they're super transparent. Like I, and just in terms of the, the type of person, um, that Worf is like, he's, he's a very well-respected person in the community. And because of, because of like how well-natured he is, um, I think at, at one point in time, card ladder was tracking, uh, a sale that was made through his consignment service. And it was, and the sale was an all time high for that particular card. And he actually goes out of his way to message them saying, listen, guys, I just want to be fully transparent with you. I know the card says that it was sold on eBay for this price through our consignment service, but the buyer actually hasn't paid. And they messaged me saying that they have no plans to pay. Um, so if I, I would appreciate like, just to give you, give you guys, you know, a sense of awareness that you can, you can take this listing or this, uh, graphic down from Instagram and Twitter or whatever. Um, and, and I just, you know, I want your debt, your, your guys database to be more accurate. Um, not everybody does that. Probstein doesn't do that. Um, there's a lot of other consigners that will not go out of their way to do that. Um, so I think transparency is probably the number one thing, uh, that I would want out of my consigner. And I know he, uh, he does like other things very well. Like he blocks, he blocks, um, uh, non-paying bidders, um, which is, you know, which is very, that's something that you want to see. It's probably not something that, like I said, other consigners will necessarily go out of their way to do. Um, they monitor for shill bidding. Um, I'm not saying all, all shillers are non-payers and I'm not saying that all non-payers are shillers, but, uh, you typically don't, it's not really a good sign if you if you see an auction just being shilled, especially by people with low feedback um, uh, numbers. So, um, yeah, there's there's plenty of things that he does well, and and in yeah, I I honestly can't see myself like if I have a decent mid range card, like mid mid to even like um, higher higher tier card, like I'm I'm definitely gonna send them to him as opposed to as opposed to golden or, or, um, PWCC, the payout time is very, it's very efficient. Like we're talking, you getting paid from the time that the auction ends to money, getting back into your PayPal account or whatever, whatever, um, uh, avenue you'd like to be paid in. We're talking about like a week's time. It's, it's really, it's really, you know, it's a fairly efficient process. Um, in terms of when you should uh, use consignment as opposed to just selling yourself on eBay, it, it, it all really comes down to price point. Um, and I guess with how comfortable you are selling anything yourself. So um, if you're dealing with you know a five-figure card, like a $10,000 card, and you want to list it on an, as an eBay auction, you that's a lot of risk right there um, because there are a lot of, you know, very good scam artists out there and $10,000 is not a small amount of money. So people will be looking to, you know, there are people out there, there are sharks that try to make a deal, a good deal for themselves any way they can. And if that means screwing you out of 10 grand, then so be it. Um, 
So I have, I personally have cards like that where, you know, I, I'm, I wouldn't mind moving them at a time like this. I just don't feel comfortable listing them myself. So that's, that's kind of the, the time when I look to go towards consignment. And, uh, in, in addition to just, um, as opposed to selling yourself, it all depends on the account, uh, the, the feedback level of, of your account and how many eyeballs you think that you would get on listing this yourself as opposed to how many eyeballs a consigner will get listing it for you. And sometimes the money that paying that, you know, 10 to 14% is worth it um, because you'll make up for that money alone, if not more, just by the sheer number of eyeballs that are, that are on his auctions as opposed to your own. So um, it's, you definitely have to take it uh, through a card by card basis. Um, I've kind of like my own personal rule of thumb is where if I'm kind of teetering around like the thousand dollar range, I'll just send it to consignment. I won't even mess with it. um, Selling it myself on eBay. So that's, that's just my two cents there. I think that is probably the most in-depth responses that have been given to any set of patron questions that we've had. And yeah, our personal experience with Wharf, at least the one that I had with you, was exceptional. Um, I didn't deal with him personally, but you went through the process as you've explained, and it was clean and simple, and the payout was fast, and he's trustworthy and accessible. So yeah, for people that are looking to do it, I mean, I, in terms of my experience, I would say that's a great person to reach out to. And Jesse kind of laid out the parameters of value and how to make that decision yourself. So guys, this might have been one of our more jam-packed episodes that we've had in a while in terms of information that was released. I definitely want to talk about this NFT thing one of these days and the apparent uh, downfall of planet Earth, which is being caused by them is just one more reason. Uh, to be concerned, Jesse. This this all adds to my theme of the end of the world, which uh, I guess started last night when I I passed out watching uh, the the Leo DiCaprio um, right. end of the world movie on Netflix. Um, so yeah, this is just a, a lump NFTs into there with the end of with the end of the world talk. Beautiful, beautiful. It's just one more reason for our downfall. All right, guys. Well, we will be back <laughs> next week on Clear the Cash. Thank you.